Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. This week it is International Women's Day and we are talking data. Not the response you were expecting? Well, that's exactly why you need this episode. Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Today on the Vintage Podcast, we are welcoming Caroline Criado Perez. She's a hugely renowned campaigner and she's just written a book that is out this week. It's called Invisible Women and it's all about the gender data gap that we're missing when it comes to conversations around equality and women. Caroline founded the website The Women's Room, uh, aiming to increase the proportion of women in the media. When the Bank of England made the decision to replace campaigner Elizabeth Fry with Winston Churchill on the £5 note, which left no women featured on the reverse of the banknote, Caroline said, nah, nah, nah. Uh, she fought until a woman was reinstated on our money, and this time it has been Jane Austen on the £10 note. She also fought Twitter on their policies around harassment on women. After seeing absolutely no women in Parliament Square, the most prominent place in our capital city where we honour great British minds, um, she launched a campaign for a statue of suffragette Millicent Fawcett to be erected in Parliament Square, which was successful. So as you might have noticed, as of April 2018, we have our statue. What can't she do? Um, so I was really excited to talk to Caroline. And after reading her book, Invisible Women, I had a lot of questions around why we've missed all of these data facts around women and she's also on a mission to stop brexit so needless to say we had a lot to talk about here's our conversation so caroline thank you so much for joining us on the vintage podcast i know you're very busy at the moment so thank (laughs) you for giving us um some of your time so what really fascinates me about all of the stuff you've taken on and all of the kind of like headfirst stuff that you've, you've ran into um, is, is the kind of contrast sometimes that I find even with myself and, and often with my friends is that I feel like I've done something because I've retweeted something or I've engaged with something on social media and it's this kind of idea of clicktivism. Um, and I know that you kind of like went away and you studied a lot and you, you saw a lot of the kind of um, the ways that feminism was important. What made you like what? What forced you to kind of go from just like learning about something or talking about something to, to actually really doing something? Do you think there was a moment or have you always been a doer? <laughs> um, well, it's hard to say because I've not always been political and I've not, um, I've certainly not always been a feminist. So I don't know if I've always been a, do- a doer. I think since I became a feminist, that I became a doer. So <laughs> Do you think they're kind of hand in hand? You know, like I, I think... So, I mean, in terms of campaigns that I've run, and really actually also writing this book, because I do see it as the sort of natural extension of the type of campaigns I run, in that it's basically about female representation, just like the uh, the campaigns on banknotes and, uh, and Millicent Fawcett and the statue were, except it's about the representation of women in data. Um, and for all of those things, it's not really been a conscious decision, something I sat down and thought about and thought, you know, what campaign should I run? I, you know, I get asked that question so often. And I don't know, because it really depends. What is the thing that's going to pop up that I just cannot get out of my head and I can't help myself from doing? And it always seems to be around female representation. I think that it is linked to the way that I got into feminism, which was basically discovering that I had male default bias in my own head. Um, so I went to university as a mature student when I was 25 and up until that point I'd never really 
properly encountered feminism. I just encountered it as this thing that, when I grew up in the 90s, was a dirty word. Um, and I definitely didn't want to be... People who burn bras and they're a yeah, bit just rude. This awful, you know, these <laughs> like, horrible... I like horrible, hair, I'm not doing it. Yeah, these horrible whining feminists who make women look bad. Mm. Um, and then I read this uh, book called Feminism and Linguistic Theory, which was my... Uh, Griffin title. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, exactly. Um, uh, it was my, my life-changing book. <laughs> um, and, and the reason was just this one page in it, basically where uh, Debbie Cameron, who's the author, writes about uh, male default in language and things like he to mean he or she, man to mean humankind. And of course, it's not like I hadn't heard of these complaints before, but I had always, like I think most people when they hear them, just thought, what a trivial waste of time. Why are you complaining about something that's so stupid? Mm. Everyone knows he means he or she. Um, but she said something that I had never heard before, which was that when women read or hear these words, they picture a man. And that just blew me away because I realised, oh my God, I picture a man. And then I thought, how is it that I'm 25 and I've never noticed that I'm always picturing men? You know, whenever the gender of the person isn't specified, unless you specifically say female lawyer, let's say, I'm picturing a man. And, and I think it was just how much of a shock that had been to me that it basically just sort of changed my life and got me really thinking about how has this impacted the way that I view my own sex um, in that I'd grown up thinking that women were just a bit rubbish. I believed all the stereotypes about women being incompetent and trivial and superficial and over-emotional uh, despite not thinking I was like that and despite not knowing any women like that. And, you know, I couldn't help thinking is the lack of female representation in the media, is the way that women are represented and underrepresented in films, um, in public spaces, in history books, is this, it has, is this why I believe this stereotype that clearly isn't true about women? Um, and so I think that's why that's just such a massive trigger for me, because it just reminds me of how angry I am that I was basically sold this lie about women for 25 years until I happened to be lucky enough to go to university and happened to be lucky enough to be told to read this book and suddenly realised that culture had been lying to me. And I think something that, like, what I love about the book and why I think it, like, fills this massive gap again that I didn't realise that we had was that um, I feel like a, a lot of the conversations around feminism that, that people might hear from the outside of feminism mm. uh, is that it's kind of like we're saying there's a conspiracy theory. Like, yeah. all of you guys have been lying to us. It's been some kind of strategy. <laughs> I know where your basement is. I know where you're... You know, there's, like, some kind of control room. Mm. And they feel like that is, is unbelievable to them. They're like, there's no conspiracy theory, you know, and therefore feminism isn't correct. Yeah. But what's interesting about the book is that you're saying that it's not through, a like always a, a stance of violence or a stance of intentional mm. um, exclusion. It, it's more literally forgetting women. Yeah. That is the default and that kind of... Yeah. And, you know, I think the fact that I, do, I was doing it myself, you know, I'm not pretending that I don't suffer from male bias as well. Mm. Um, this is the culture that we live in. It's the culture that we're brought up in. And this is just a pervasive way of thinking that has infected medical research through to town planning, through to occupational health, through to you know, how we measure the economy that takes men as the baseline default human and forgets to think about women at all. Mm. And if it does think about women, thinks of them as atypical and some sort of niche minority. You know, we're half the world's population. In fact, slightly more than. <laughs> um, so it just 
doesn't make any sense. And as a result, you know, women are being at the minor end inconvenienced and at the major end being Dying. killed. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the stats, my, not, I can't say my favourite stat because it's not happy, <laughs> but like the one that really blew my mind was that 47, you're 47% more likely to die in a car crash as 47% a woman. more likely to be seriously injured. Oh, seriously injured in a car crash, very important. 17% um, more likely to die. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, because the seat, seat belts are designed for male passengers. Well, just the whole like, car kind of, is. Yeah. You know, so um, basically, you know, it's a number of things, but the typical crash test dummy is based around the 50th percentile male um, and so things like uh, the, the seat design, seats are too firm for women so they get thrown forward in a crash, um, the headrest is at the wrong height for a woman yeah. the pedals are too far away and the dashboard is too high so women have to sit too far forward and that makes them out of position drivers, they're not in the standard seating position and that makes them in a more dangerous position if they get into a crash. Um, and a significantly more dangerous position, yes. 47% more likely to be seriously injured. And those are life-changing injuries we're talking about. This is not just sort of, you know, a bump on the head. This is a serious thing that will change your life. Um, and then, of course, 17% more likely to die. Um, and no one is doing this on purpose. You know, I, I do not for one second think that car manufacturers are sitting down and thinking, ooh, how can we kill the ladies today? Um, but because we are so used to using men as the default, we just don't realise that this is what we're doing. Mm. And so what I really hope will come about as a result of the book, and actually it's been incredibly heartening and gratifying that I've had quite a lot of men and women get in touch, you know, who work in design, who work in policy, saying, you know, thank you so much for writing this. I am working on this project and I am going to actually go back and re-look at all this stuff that I may have missed. Because that is exactly what I want. Because all I'm saying here is we're not factoring in women. It is affecting women's health and well-being. Let's just start counting 50% of the human population. I mean, you know, it's not some wild outlandish thing I'm asking for here. Yeah. Um, you've had some amazing press coverage already about the book and people have been reacting really positively. There have been a few men I've seen on, on of course on Twitter, <laughs> You're our favourite place to hang out, and they've been like, well actually, uh, Caroline, if we do change things, isn't it going to become more dangerous for men? What do you say to those people? Like, how do you even... <laughs> I, I mean, it's... I, well, you can hear, I don't know yeah, what to say like, to like, those people. I mean, you know... I, how can you be happy with a world where people that you love and care about, your mum, gets into a car, she is 47% more likely than you to be seriously injured if you're in a car crash with her? Are you really happy to live in that world? Mm. I don't believe that people are happy to live in that world. I don't believe that people are happy to live in a world where women are more likely to die following a heart attack, where women are more likely to be misdiagnosed if they have a heart attack. Um, I think that the vast majority of men and women care that women's health is being negatively impacted. Um, and I think that the men who have got in touch on Twitter, A, I think they're a minority, certainly based on the things that I've seen, the messages I've received, it's been overwhelmingly positive from men and women. The men who have been negative, I just feel they're not engaging with what I'm actually saying. They're just seeing, oh, feminist book, I'm going to dislike it. Yeah. Um, and feeling defensive about it. Because if they actually sat down and looked at the stats and looked at the data that I'm presenting, no person who isn't a sociopath <laughs> could possibly think that things don't need to change. Absolutely. Um, 
one of um, the things that really interested me is and you have this, you know, the thing that you're like, I can make anything about feminism and sexism and <laughs> one of those snow clearing. Can yeah. you tell us that story? Because um, absolutely. Yeah, I do love that. Um, so, I mean, I just think it's so funny because the way it came about was actually as a joke. So it was in Sweden. Of course, it was in Sweden. So in the local town council office of this place called Karlskoga, um, they were doing a gender audit of all their policies. And someone said, oh, well, you know, at least the gender people won't get their noses into snow clearing. Because obviously, how could snow clearing have anything to do with gender? Um, uh, Unfortunately for them, (laughs) they got the gender people thinking. Um, And so they did look into snow clearing, and they discovered that actually gender has quite a big impact on snow clearing um, because of the way, the distinct ways that men and women tend to travel. So men tend to have a much more simple way of travelling. They're much more likely to drive rather than use public transport, and they're much more likely just to do a straight commute in and out in the morning and the evening. Um, Women, because of their unpaid care work responsibilities and also because they... um, If a car is... uh, If a household has access to a car, it tends to be men who dominate the use of it, and also women women tend to have less money. So they tend to be more likely to use public transport, and they're more likely to do what is called trip chaining, which means a series of interconnected little um, trips. So, you know, taking the kids to school before they go to work, and picking up groceries on the way back, maybe taking an elderly relative to the doctor. Um, And so this means they're much more likely to be walking on the pavements and using local roads, as opposed to men who are more likely to be using the main roads. But the way the snow clearing had been set up was to do the main roads first and then do the pavements and the sidewalks. Um, sorry, the pavements and the local roads. And um, so they switched it around um, because they figured, well, it's actually easier to drive a car through three inches of snow than to push a buggy, for example, or yeah. push a bike or uh, a wheelchair through three inches of snow. Um, but what they found to their surprise was not only was this benefiting you know, a lot of people, it also decreased their healthcare bill because, I mean, this sounds so obvious when you think about it, you're much more likely to fall and hurt yourself in icy conditions if you're walking Mm. than if you're driving. Um, And actually, when they looked into um, admissions to hospital for falling during icy conditions, pedestrians massively dominated the numbers, and particularly women. I think it was 70%. Um, wow. of those who were seriously injured um, in icy conditions were female pedestrians. Um, so it was just this huge transformation, cost them absolutely nothing, but ended up saving them an awful lot of money. That's incredible. <laughs> it's just mad, isn't it? Um, but, I mean, it is mad, like, but, you know, I think it's, it's a really good example. how it's missed, like... But I think it's a really good example of why you need to collect sex-disaggregated data. Because if they had started from the position of, you know, let's look at what the hospital admissions are, why is it that women are so much more likely to be admitted during the winter winter months? You know, why is it that we're having to spend so much on patching women up and sending them home? They might have come around and realised that this snow-clearing schedule was costing, costing, you know, the public purse an awful lot of money. Yeah setting you back a lot of money as well as the whole yeah. quality thing. Yeah, well, of course, but, yeah. you know, it's always useful to be able to say, and it'll save you money. It's yeah. not just the right thing to do, <laughs> it's the smart thing to do. So with your kind of campaigning, 
you must have like learned a lot over the years and and now you know at the moment you're focusing some of your efforts on the people's folk can you tell us a little about what what you're working on with that and how it's going um it's going great <laughs> okay <good. laughs> we're definitely gonna get a people's folk okay. um so yeah i joined um a few months ago to work specifically with women for a people's vote um, and the reason I did that is that I, I think along with a lot of women, have been incredibly frustrated at how male-dominated, even more so than politics usually is, um, the Brexit debate has been. And that is partly in terms of, you know, who we have speaking about it. Um, in the run-up to the referendum, it was hugely male-dominated, all the press, all the politicians who were talking um, but, it, you know, it's sort of continued. And, and, and it's not just who is talking, it's also what they're talking about. You know, they're not talking about the things that affect women's lives. Um, we're talking about these sort of abstract issues um, that don't necessarily mean anything to the average person on the street. You say that GDP is going to drop 0.3%. What does that mean to someone who hasn't been able to get her universal credit payments um, or to someone who's in an abusive relationship and her husband is withholding the universal credit payments? Um, so I have been involved trying to get the debate to focus more on the tangible reasons that it is democratic to hold a people's vote, which is basically that the way Brexit is going to impact on women has not been properly discussed. It is going to disproportionately impact on women. Um, and now that we have basically got the full facts, which we didn't have prior to uh, the referendum in 2016 being held, you know, we had uh, remaining in the EU versus this sort of black box that everyone could project their hopes and fears onto. And, you know, you can barely find two Brexiters, even today, who will tell you the same story about what they think Brexit is. Um, there's just no way to hold a referendum. You know, if you look at the, um, the, uh, the abortion referendum that was held in Ireland, it was totally different. They had remained the same, or here is this specific piece of legislation that we have debated um, across the country with loads of different people. You know, we've, he we've held public debates um, and we've come up with this specific legislation. You know what it's going to look like. Is this what you want? That's the way. That's if you choice. have to have a referendum, yeah. that is the way you do it. And we didn't do that. Um, but now with Theresa May's sort of deal, we can do that. We can say, look, do you want this? Having said that, you know, it's still a pretty ridiculous question to be asking people because her deal basically doesn't say anything. Mm -hmm. It just says we've got two more years um, to sort out what our future relationship will be like. And so, we're, you know, if we went with Theresa May's deal, we'd end up with 10 more years of wrangling um, at least over what it's going to be like. So, I mean, for me, one of the strongest arguments for a people's vote is that it gives us a chance to just stop talking about Brexit all the time. I am so bored of this. And it's also draining a lot of funds as well. It, Brexit, Even the negotiations Absolutely. around Brexit have already drained a lot of funds. And well, it's not just the money, it's mm. also the time. Mm. You know, Parliament's done basically nothing for mm. two years other than debate this intractable issue yeah. that is going to be terrible for the country either way. Meanwhile, things like the domestic violence bill just haven't happened, mm. and to the extent that they have, have been massively watered down and um, there are all sorts of incredibly important pieces of legislation that we are waiting on that need to be passed um, and they just haven't happened I mean one of the things I think is interesting 
Um, I'm waiting to see whether the government will implement um, the EU's new action plan on equal pay, which was meant to be implemented, or it's meant to be implemented by 2019, but the deadline is November, which is technically, you know, after we are supposedly going to have left. Um, and the government's done absolutely nothing on that. You know, it's had two years to do something on it. It's not done anything on it because it's just been focusing on Brexit. Yeah. You're, you've not only been campaigning, but this book has really given people, I think, something really concrete to go away, think about, learn mm. about, and have something to say when they're trying to have, look like... Um, uh, productive conversations with people about about this data. Um, if you could go back and tell your younger self a couple of pointers about how to, you know, really act on what we've learned and not just read the book, but really go out and re- react to it. Like, what what would you go back and tell, like, little Caroline? <laughs> For me, one of the... I mean, there are lots of reasons I wrote the book. Um, the number one being that I couldn't help myself. The number two being that it is just an unbelievable injustice... Um, that women are dying and why isn't this a massive national talking point Um, but also it was because I think that approaching uh, gender inequality from the perspective of facts and data and statistics um, is a helpful way in for people who haven't been exposed that much to feminism people who like me in my teens and early 20s knew about feminism based on what you read in, uh, you know, a few aggressive articles that said feminism was terrible. Um, And this kind of removes the emotion from it. You know, this is not saying that anyone is evil or terrible or wanting women to die. It says that the systems that we have in place that uh, govern how we design our world um, are based around men. And, you know... Anyone can see that that's an injustice. And anyone can see that the results of that are catastrophic for women. Um, so I, I really hope that this is a book that will reach a lot of people who aren't already feminists. Um, I think, well, I hope um, that it is a book that will make a lot of women feel a lot better about why they, you know, make them realise, oh, it's not, there's nothing wrong with me. And in fact, that's been the overwhelming sense from women has been one of relief that they've been getting in touch with me saying... Oh, we're not going mad. Yes. Yeah. And I always thought it was me. I thought there was something wrong with me. And that makes me incredibly angry that so many women have going, been going around thinking there's something wrong with them. But also I'm so, so happy that this book has made them realise that there's nothing wrong with them, that the problem is actually the world that hasn't been designed to account for 50% of the population. Um, but I also hope that it will be uh, an eye-opener and an easy way in for people who wonder what's all this feminism thing about and who tend to feel quite defensive about it. And, you know, I I can understand to a certain extent why certain men might feel defensive because I think that there is this misapprehension that because women talk about the issues that women specifically face that we are therefore saying that men have it easy in all aspects of their lives. And nobody is saying that for a moment. There are all sorts of issues that men face, um, including to do with gender, actually. You know, I mean, the, 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 the line would be that women are discriminated against on the basis of their gender and men aren't. And that is true, but that doesn't mean that, the, that gender doesn't harm men as well. Of course it does in, in all sorts of ways. But it doesn't affect them in this particular instance of having data. We have data on men. It's women that we don't have data on. 
there's the, the other fact that really blew my mind was that for, for every one study there is on PMS, there's five on erectile <laughs> dysfunction. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and PMS is something that affects 90% of women. Yeah. And erectile, total erectile dysfunction is really not a very big thing. Mm. Partial erectile dysfunction affects quite a few men, um, but by no means 90% of men. Yeah. Um, so, and again... I'm not saying we shouldn't have research on erectile dysfunction. Yeah. Of course we should. It's a very unpleasant experience for the men who have it. But we should be researching PMS. And instead, funding applications for research on PMS are being declined on the basis that this is not a serious issue, this is not a public health concern. Yeah, but again, How is it not a public <laughs> health concern? Ways that, ways that women can react to the book, would you suggest it, it's to do with like personal conversations? Do you think... You know, we should be intentionally working this into everything we're doing. I don't think the onus is on women. No, I think women know that the world is not made for them. Mm. I think this does give them the the facts. It arms them with the facts to be able to talk to people, men who don't experience it, and explain what the issue is. But for me, the onus is on policymakers. It's on politicians. Um, it's on people who are designing whatever product it is from, you know, uh, workplace tools to technology to algorithms um, to medical research. You know, the, the tech industry in particular has a big job to do because algorithms are becoming increasingly involved in our lives, are increasingly ruling our lives, are taking decisions on our behalf, and they are being trained on databases that are wildly skewed towards male data, from uh, you know voice databases to text databases to medical research databases. I mean, I find the idea that algorithms are being let loose in the medical world absolutely terrifying. You know, humans are bad enough, okay, but yeah. at least humans, you know, aren't Could purely unlearn. exactly, and they aren't purely operating on the basis of these are the statistics. This is how it works. You know, they can sort of see whether things are working or not. Um, women are already dying as a result of this. We certainly do not want to unleash machine learning on data that is wildly biased towards men. Um, and my concern is is that people in the tech industry are so enthralled to the idea of this amazing objective big data that they just have no idea how corrupt, basically, their data is. Um, and, and the other thing that's really concerning for me is that so many of these algorithms are protected as tr- trade secrets. So we can't even look at them to see whether they are dealing with the fact that their data is so partial. That's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, 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 but it's good, and it's good to say that, you know, it is, it is about who is responsible, who are the professionals. Like, it's to do a professional job, you need to look at these stats. It's not just about being compassionate or, you know, doing no. us a favour. No, it's um, absolutely not. It's about doing your bloody job properly. <laughs> There's so much research in the book. How did you go about picking out what was important and kind of organising it into some kind of, you know... Oh understandable way because what I found was like I'm really scared of data but actually the book kind of almost held my hand through it It was like it's okay we'll start at the beginning here's a bit have a bit more are you ready for some more there you go um how did you go about like um arranging that in a way that was like accessible that is so nice to hear because writing it was an absolute mindfuck Mm. because the data is so overwhelming yeah and the lack of data is so overwhelming and Mm. and it is so difficult because you're I'm writing about the whole world and everything in it yeah um so, and each chapter could have been a book. Um, so how did I do it? I don't know, really. I just, <laughs> I had a very good editor who helped me. Um, and I think I just, 
kept coming back to, I am trying to show how pervasive this is, how widespread it is, and how it is the product of a particular way of thinking. It's good because it's, it's included these these things that are almost absurd but also believable. Well, you know? yeah, that's what's exactly. interesting. It's like, I can see how that happened, even though yeah. that's mad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for writing the book. Thank you for it's having me. It's out on Thursday, um, just the day before International Women's Day. Yes. I cannot wait. Yes. Um, so um, we're all going to run out and buy the books. Are we guys? Are we guys? Yeah, they're saying yeah. I can hear them. Okay. The uh, <laughs> and then also, how can we get involved in the people's vote? So two things. Mm-hmm. First of all, go to women4, as in the number 4, mm-hmm. pv.org, okay. um, and sign up to um, the campaign there and we will keep you updated with everything that we're doing. Um, And also make sure that you sign up to come along to the march on the 23rd of March, um, which is just a few days before supposed Brexit Day. Um, And I think it's really important that we have this massive show of strength um, to show that the people want to have a final say. So I kind of see it in the tradition of this amazing uh, rally basically that the suffragists held um, in the early 20th century and they had people walking from all across the country to gather in Hyde Park to show politicians how big the strength of feeling was for women to have the vote. I think they had 50,000 people, which in an age before social media is absolutely incredible. Um, So we need to do better than that because we have social media. And there's lots more people. And now. there's a lot more people. Um, so I think that you know, that's, that's what this is about. It is showing politicians who claim that they are acting according to the will of the people that actually they are not acting according to the will of the people and that what the people actually want is to be able to have their say now that the full facts of Brexit are abundantly clear. And I think as well, like, what's interesting is that reading these stats and, and realising that actually historically things have been skewed, it's like we're still part of history. This is a, exactly, especially 2019, this is a moment that people are going to look back on. And I want those streets to be full. So even if things, you know, hopefully things will get better. But even if people are looking back and going, what went wrong? You can show how many people were against it. We're turning Absolutely. up and being, like, representing in history what we felt. I saw this horrendous video um, today, which just made me feel so ashamed. And it's this... Uh, Danish 87-year-old grandmother who has lived in Scotland for over 50 years Mm. and she is saying how she just doesn't understand why does she have to register? This is her home. And she said she grew up in um, Copenhagen under German occupation and she said they used to look at Britain and think how great Britain was Mm. and that she doesn't feel that anymore. And I just that was just a punch in the gut because she's right it is disgusting what we're doing um and I I don't want to be a part of that Mm. and and I think if you don't want to be a part of that coming along on the march is a really important way of signaling that you reject this kind of politics because we absolutely should because it's not that far in history you know within her lifetime what happens when you go down this path and it is not a path that we want to go down I feel like we're, we're not even aiming for great at the moment. I'm just like, I'll, I'll take good Britain. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm not even... Um, I'd, yeah, take, I'd take just neutral Britain. <laughs> neutral Britain. That'd be ne- fine. That's fine. Beige. That's all we want. That's all we want. Um, there's a great, like, Michael Moore, he said this about America, but he said, um, he, it was in the documentary Capitalism, A Love Story, and he said, I refuse to live in a country like this, and I'm not leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and that I really like that line like, I love like, that. right, well I'm here forever so <laughs> we're going to have to sort it 
Thank you for listening to the Vintage Podcast. I have been Lena Norms. You have been the most dedicated bookish listeners ever. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast. Thank you so much for reviewing it on iTunes and sharing it with your friends. Um, you can follow us at Vintage Books on Twitter and Instagram if you want to talk more about these incredible figures or any other books that you might want to discover or talk about. We're always up for giving recommendations on our social platforms. If you're interested in reading more about women, you can go to po.st slash vintage women where you will find our reading list of women we are setting aside the whole of 2019 to read as many women as possible and there is a link there if you want to join our facebook group we have a secret facebook group that is all around discussing the classics against the new releases and really doing a deep dive into some of the newest and some of the most prominent historical voices in the feminist space so do watch out for that you can find the links in the show notes and you can also go to po.st slash vintage women to find out more We hope you have an excellent International Women's Day on Friday and every day of the week. Isn't every day International Women's Day? I think so. Uh, Thank you for listening and until next time. (laughs) 